0: Everyone. Welcome to episode 164 of The Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have a thank you
1: to Sonia, our new Patreon. Thank you so much, Sonia. It was so great to see your face as a new Patreon supporter. Yes, we're very happy to have you. And reminder
0: that we are starting to do a Patreon-only book giveaway once a month. We will still be doing our every 10th episode giveaway to anyone who's a newsletter subscriber. Once a month, we're going to be giving away a different book to people who are Patreons. So this month, drumroll, we're giving away a copy of The Ski Jumpers by Peter Guy. Thank you to the University of Minnesota Press for sending us a copy of this book for a giveaway. For those of you who have been Booktopians, you might recognize Peter's name. He was, I believe, in Petoskey one year. This book's a little bit of a departure. He's writing about semi-autobiographically, he was a ski jumper until he was 19. And this is about someone who was a ski jumper turned writer who's looking back at his family life.
1: Awesome. I can't wait to dig into that one. I love ski jumping. It's one of those sports that I always get hooked on when I come across it on TV or look forward to the Winter Olympics to watch that.
0: Me too. So if you're a Patreon by the 15th of September,
1: you'll be automatically entered to win. Indeed.
0: So, Chris, what are you currently reading?
1: Well, I'm currently reading How to Read Now, which is a hot book. It is by Elaine Costello. She's the author of America is Not the Heart as well, which is a book I did not read. This one, wow, it's a collection of essays about reading and not what you would maybe think it is. She's really going after some of the assumptions we have about reading and reader's I'm not going to go into great detail about this one, because it is on fire. In fact, the cover on the word now, the O is a bomb. Mm -hmm. So she is really a fantastic writer. I mean, so entertaining and thought-provoking and funny. Really funny. I'm enjoying it immensely. How to Read Now, essays by Elaine Castillo. I read a lot of heavy books over the last two weeks. So a few days ago,
0: I picked up Finley Donovan Knocks Him Dead by El Casimano. This is the follow up to Finley Donovan is Killing It that I read last year. This came out, I think, in the winter. Finley's back at it again. There's a new mystery. And it's also meta in that she's a fiction writer. So it's that classic life imitates fiction. So she's kind of wrapping up things that are happening in her real life into her fiction <laughs> that her editor is demanding she get to her. It's really fun and funny. She's a good writer, very light. So again, this is called Finley Donovan Knocks Him Dead, the second
1: book in her Finley Donovan series. Very cool. I know that name sounded familiar. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm also reading a book called Finding Dora Mar, an artist, an address book, a life. This is by Bridget Bankenmon and on the cover says it was an international bestseller. I do not know, I did not know I should say who Dora Mar is. She was a photographer and a painter. Unfortunately she's mostly known, I think, until recently anyway, as Picasso's lover, one of his lovers. How this book came into my hands. It was put into my hands by Anne at the Institute Library in New Haven. I was there visiting, chatting. She asked me what was going on with my coursework. And I told her about this internship that I'm starting where I'll be working with the writer's address book. And she's like, oh, do you know about this book? And I said, no. So she took me to the shelf and put it in my hands. The story of this, Finding Dora Mar, is about Bridget's husband, lost his address book. Beloved Hermes leather address book, made with the kind of leather that is no longer made. So he ended up having to buy a used one. So when it arrived from the seller, she, Brigitte, started looking and tucked in the back, she finds this list of addresses. And she starts reading the names and she's like, what? These names are all famous painters and artists from 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond France. So she starts digging into it, and it's Dora Marr's address book. Wow! So I'm currently reading it, and it's coming to me, obviously, at a perfect time. I mean, it's a very entertaining story, but it's also instructive, because one of the names that's on here is a known friend of Dora's. But when the author starts looking at dates, she realizes oh, this couldn't be that woman living in France because she was actually living in Connecticut by that time. Mm. So who was this person? So she's like, assume nothing. Good advice for me who's going to be embarking on that project soon. So again, that's Finding Dora Mar by Brigitte Benkenman. It reminds me of that book I read and talked
0: about at the Newburyport Festival, the address book. You know, addresses are fascinating and they have a lot of meaning, but they also have a lot of memory. Mm. Back in the day, you used to write down people's names and addresses in an address book and you would scratch it out and then you'd write their next address and you'd scratch it out and write their next address. And now with cell phones, you just delete it and you add another address. And I have regret that I don't have all of their addresses from when they've left home because it's kind of a walk down memory lane. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Like even Jacob, when he was living in Vermont, he lived in three different places in nine months. And one of them's like, oh, right, that was the flea-infested house you had to leave, you know? <laughs> right. So it would just be kind of fun someday to just sit with them and be like, oh, look at all this. Totally.
1: So. I found my address book from the 1980s when I was in the military. It's fascinating. Um, I helped somebody solve a mystery that they had. And some of the names of people, I mean, this is written in my handwriting. Yeah. I don't remember them, Oh, interesting. you know, and other yeah. people, it's just like, Oh, my God, that person yeah. haven't thought about him for years or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, they're definitely fascinating artifacts. Yeah, that can really lead you in a lot of different directions. I should probably read the address book that you interviewed yeah. the author.
0: It's more about the meanings of where people live and their street names and stuff. But I think it would be interesting whilst you're on this project. You yeah. Know.
1: yeah, I have a copy. You're welcome to. Okay, cool. Thank you. I'll take you up on that. <laughs> All right. So Emily, what have you just read?
0: Well, in honor of your going back to school, I thought I would read a kid's book, because I thought maybe those would be coming back into your life now that you're entering <laughs> back in school. And I heard about this book, We Are Water Protectors, because it won the Caldecott in 21. And it's got beautiful illustrations. It's written by Carol Lindstrom, and then illustrated by Michaela Goad. The basic premise of it is about Native people and wanting to protect water, and how the black snake comes in, and the black snake represents oil pipelines. Mm. It's just really beautiful, the whole idea of it. It was inspired by the Dakota pipeline fiasco and how people stood to try to prevent it happening to protect their land and their water and then sure enough just as the pipeline was even being built there was a contamination of water happening being what's happening in Jackson Mississippi right now and other places I think it's just really relevant and a beautiful way to talk to children they recommend it ages three to six to talk to children about the environment and the importance of water really lovely Again, it's called We Are Water Protectors
1: by Carol Lindstrom. Nice. May I borrow that one as well? Sure. (laughs) Well, I read one that's related to the environment. I finished A Ghost of Caribou by Alice Henderson. This is her next installment in her Alex Carter series. It's coming out November 15th from William and Morrow. Wow. This one is another great book. Very engaging educational entertaining suspenseful it has everything except maybe sex Mm. i've been watching outlander so i have sex on the brain (laughs) anyway it has some fighting scenes i mean she really goes through the ringer the premise of this one is alex has finished up her latest study which was way north with polar bears and now she's in washington She's going to be trying to figure out if mountain caribou are back in the area. That's her mission. Their camera set up. They think there might have been one-sided. They're not sure, so they have cameras around. But Alex is coming to spend X amount of time there to do some tracking, to put up more cameras, to do what she does as a wildlife biologist trying to figure out. health of a population or if a certain animal even exists in an area she comes upon some odd booby traps she's not sure some of them seem really old and others not so much there's a case of a woman ranger who had gone missing and this is kind of at the very beginning her body turns up at the town square yeah emily's making big eyes at me like you know it is intense you know there is violence Alex really kicks ass and there's a character from the last novel who's in this one as well. I don't want to give any spoilers, so I won't say anything about that character, but it involves some not so good people. And I will leave it at that. Yeah. I mean it's hard to talk about a really Mysteries are hard to talk about. Yeah. On the cover they call it a suspense novel. I know we've talked about like what is a suspense, mm-hmm. you know, versus mystery versus thriller. And I do feel like this has elements of all three of those sub genres. One of the things we both like about Alice Henderson's books is that she has a really great story. Alex Carter's a really awesome character, but then she also incorporates a lot of really helpful environmental information as well about different animals in the environment. I'll just read this. She's talking about fires in the forest. Normally, this material would be cleared out by smaller, naturally occurring fires that burned along the forest floor. But with these fires stamped out by humans in the past, undergrowth amassed. Couple that extra material with devastating drought brought on by global warming and fires were now taking on epic proportions, wiping out vast swaths of forest. Many trees that were adapted to withstand milder fires that burned on the forest floor could not survive these disastrous ones which reached the canopy. Mm. Poor forest management is a big reason that we're having a lot of these forest fires Traditionally, the West has always had forest fires, but not these humongous raging fires, as she just wrote. So there's that issue of bad forest management. Uh, She also mentions at one point that insects have declined by 75% in the last 50 years, and we've talked about insect population and the tragedy and catastrophe that that is leading us towards. But then she also has really wonderful details about the animal, the mountain caribou. One of the distinctive things that she's listening for is that their tendons, when they walk, click over their foot bones. So like you can really hear one. So that's something she's listening for as well. So there's the visual of the videos and photographs and then tracking and then the sound, which I think is kind of a different type of sound because you think about animals calling or growling or something like that as opposed to what they sound like when they're walking Mm. yeah so wonderful book i highly recommend this series i can speak for emily that she really recommends it as well we've both read the first two so that was a ghost of caribou by alice henderson and it's out in november but that gives you time to read the other two so get
0: cracking. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> or no, we want pressure. Yeah, that, that was a direct order, I right. think. <laughs> and also reminder that Alice Henderson was on the podcast. So if you want to listen to her talk about those other two books, and she mentions that she's writing
1: Ghost yes. of Caribou. So yeah, tiny. she talks about that. And that was episode 141. Excellent.
0: I finished Small World. Small World was written by Laura Zygman. This book comes out January 10th of 23. I mentioned that Separation Anxiety by Laura Zygman was one of my top reads, and that it was very funny. I think when I talked about this book, having just started it, I said it was funny. This book is not funny. This book was really sad, and very heavy. If you read the author's note, it is semi-autobiographical. It is a work of fiction. But Laura Zygman and her sister lost a sister when they were little. She had a rare bone disorder. This book is about two sisters who are now adults living together and reflecting back on their lives after they've both had divorces. And about their sister's death, they had a sister that was at the time they referred to as retarded. Now we would say developmentally delayed who was put into a home eventually and died of the flu within the year of being there. And their mother had been very devoted to their sister living a life that was full and rich. And so she really fought for the rights of disabled-bodied people. The book is about what happens then when you're the able-bodied sisters and you really just don't want to take up space In the family, that a lot of the time and space is taken in the parents' lives helping to take care of this child. And then what happens after their sister dies is it's not really talked about. Mm -hmm. And the parents' marriage falls apart. And these two sisters kind of make their own way and feel like there's a lot of pain and sadness that they haven't been able to digest. So here they are as adults working on that. It was very heavy, very sad. Very well written. And the one part that was kind of fun, I wouldn't go as far as to say there's humor, but there's a site called Small World. That's what the name is based on. That's like a neighborhood site where you post things that are going on in the neighborhood. And one of the main characters, Joyce, takes these posts, and she makes her own found poetry out of them. Mm. So that's really interesting and poignant, the poems that she makes. You know, I enjoyed it, but it was a heavy read. I didn't want to mislead people when I implied that it was funny. It's really about the toll that unprocessed grief takes on these two adult sisters. Small World, Laura Zygman, out January 10th.
1: It's kind of hard when you first start reading a book, what you say about it. Because overall, then, it has a different impact. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Especially sometimes, you know, in our currently reading it's a book we picked up and started reading the night before
1: right (laughs) i think that was the case with this one
0: yeah
1: i read are they women a novel concerning the third sex it was written by amy Duke. do you see she was a german writer and this is edited and translated by margaret Sonser brie and nisha Comaton. this was a book that was originally published in 1901 It's considered one of the first lesbian novels ever written. This is a really cool edition because it has explanatory essays in the beginning, and then it has some contemporary reviews, which are really powerful. I've dipped into them a little bit, but I can't say that I, I read them fully. But I did read the novel, which is short. Like, it is more of a short story than a novel. It opens in a college town. So it's this group of women who are in college, they come from different backgrounds. Some of them are lower middle class, middle class, a couple are wealthy, and they are a group of lesbians or women who are trying to figure themselves out. And you know, you think about this 1901. The sexologists who started categorizing sexual behavior and labeling some things good and other things bad just started writing in the late 19th century. It's less of a story that would be considered a novel today, it has a lot of political weight behind it. I wouldn't call it a political tract at all, but there are a lot of info dumps about some issues and arguments that are being put across and others are produced through conversation, like more contemporary novels are. One of the things I thought was really fascinating and one of the arguments made is that People need to understand who they are sexually before they enter marriage so they don't become stuck in a soul-sucking situation and can actually have a happy marriage. The argument is, is that people should have the time to figure themselves out before they do that so that people who are more disposed to be married can be married and have a happy marriage. One of the characters was married. She's a woman, married to a man for three years, and she regrets that time lost, and that she wasted three years of his life. And I thought that was a really great point for 1901. It's not something people would disagree with today. So this is from the novel. Had, for example, some sympathetic soul recognized and warned me in time, I would not have robbed my former spouse of three years of his life, and I would not have wasted that precious time. We can measure the agony that women such as we encounter in marriage. If she is not sensual, even the normal woman suffers under the physical aspects of the conjugal bond. Such a marriage murders the soul. And she goes on from there and talks really about how marriage is the foundation of the state and how the state has so much invested in this and people just shutting up and marrying. (laughs) And she says that people are poorly hidden behind civilization's magic cloak of morality. So it's pretty powerful at times. Again, it's not a story that we would consider a novel today, but I thought it was quite fascinating for the time period. And I appreciated that you have this group of women back then who are based on a a group of women um, that existed And how relevant it is to like my life, for example, like in the 1980s, when I was in the Marines, a whole bunch of women from different areas of the country and different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ranks would find each other. And we would have these little enclaves of friendship groups in that way. It's surprising what can be relatable from over a hundred years ago, even though it's a very short story. And it's about making a political argument, it is also, I think, a really inspiring story about a group of women who are trying to pursue their independence, their intellectual interests, and their love interests as well. I think it's still a powerful story for that. So again, that was Are They Women?, a novel concerning the third sex by Amy Duke, and it came out originally in 1901. This is the first full english translation of the book and it is based on the 1901 first edition apparently there were multiple editions and i might talk more about this book in the future after i read some of the introductory materials and reviews but this is a wonderful edition it's from broadview press if you are into women's history lgbtq issues i highly recommend it awesome
0: I was thinking about when we posted a picture of it on social media, because it was Chris's Friday Reads. Mm -hmm. And when I was researching it, it made me think about our conversation with Fiona Davis. I think it was the Lions of Fifth Avenue, maybe when there was the group of women that were meeting around the corner. I mean, it was a totally different time period. But it reminded me of that.
1: That was the group in Greenwich Village. And there's a new book out about them.
0: Right, that looks really good too. Yeah, we talked a lot about it, and so it made me think of that. But then I looked at the date, and I was like, "Oh, totally different time period." But
1: but really, you know, not that much later mm-hmm. because the New York Public Library opened in the late eighteen hundreds, so it would have been around this time, same time period. period. Yeah, okay, same time period. And there are other things in here like bicycle riding and just how bicycles gave women freedom and also exercise, mm. but just so much freedom to go and do what they want to do. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Well, I finished Black, White and the Gray, the Story of an Unexpected Friendship and a Beloved Restaurant by Mashama Bailey and John O. Morisano. This is the book that I kind of pushed people out of the way to get to the book barn. I was so excited. It did not disappoint. The book itself is such an interesting design. I'm just going to open it up and show it to Chris. It's got text in different font, color, and style, and those represent the two different authors because it's a back and forth conversation they're having, the two of them. So Mashima Bailey is the chef and John O Morisano, who goes by John O, is the businessman behind the restaurant that moved to Savannah, found this old dilapidated Greyhound bus station and just decided to buy it and decided to open a restaurant. He'd never opened a restaurant. He loves food and wine, but is not a chef. He felt like it was really important to find a female, preferably a black female chef to run the restaurant. I don't know how much he knew, but he felt like race was going to be an issue was the deep south. The book is bookended by an event, which was that there was a tragedy where their general manager and Mashimo had been out having drinks late at night were walking down the street. And he was hit and killed by a car. Gosh. And the car was fleeing a gang incident. Oh, wow. So it really brought to the forefront the conversation about race because the restaurant is located not far from a housing project. Yeah. yeah. It did two things. I mean, it was a tragedy for the restaurant because he was the beloved employee and a general manager in charge of everything. And also, it was the first time that Mashima really called John O on the phone and just was completely devastated and distraught. And it strengthened their friendship and relationship. Mm-hmm. So, John O decides he wants to write a book. And Mashima's like, hell to the no. I am not interested. I'm a chef. I have 50 million irons in the fire. And so he wrote the book. And then when he asked her to read it, she realized, well, this can't be the book that represents us because my voice isn't here at all. So they took leave and went to Paris. This was right before the pandemic. They took five weeks there, just held up in an apartment and rewrote the book together. (laughs) And it's really enjoyable. There are recipes at the end of each chapter, which of course I loved. But Savannah is also really a character in the book. Mashima had lived in Savannah when she was six for a period of time, but both of them are actually really New Yorkers at heart. So I thought I would just read a little portion that's where they're talking about Savannah. Modern day Savannah is certainly progressive and diverse by Southern standards. Thanks to its history as an outlier, the variety of religious groups that occupy it and SCAD, which is the school of design. However, its past is also rife with, at best, indifference, and at worst, overt and covert racism. It is the South, after all. Even its diverse religious base was born of intolerance. When James Oglethorpe settled Savannah for the crown in 1733, the trustees of the colony had three distinct roles—no Jews, no Papists, and no slavery these were prerequisites for the utopian society Oglethorpe, a trustee himself, was trying to create in Georgia, named for King George II. But fate, not Enlightenment, would intervene over time, eliminating all three of these rules. The Jewish ban ended quickly when, in the summer of 1733, five months after Oglethorpe settled Savannah, many of his original group took seriously ill. He badly needed a doctor to tend to his settlers, It just so happened that right at that same moment, a ship carrying a contingent of Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews who were seeking their own freedom to worship had just arrived from England, and one of them happened to be a doctor. Oglethorpe, pragmatist that he was, let them into his utopia, and Mikveh Israel, the congregation they founded, is now a stalwart of Savannah society. The slavery ban, the only one of the trustees' three directives that actually tended toward true enlightenment, had no real chance of survival. Economics would not allow it, and in 1750, people did what people in power do and placed their own well-being ahead of the needs of those in positions of weakness or vulnerability. In this case, the weak and vulnerable were the chained Africans who were brought and sold regularly in the slave markets throughout the South. So Savannah eventually had 400 enslaved people recorded living there. So, Mashama and John O just go back and forth in this book and talk about the founding of the restaurant, what it's like to run a restaurant together, the things they had to face and come to terms with themselves. And then, like I said, in the back of each chapter, there's a beautiful recipe. I really enjoyed this book. And if you are a fan of restaurant and chef memoirs, it's something really different. Cool. Yeah. Wow. So, I'm glad I elbowed someone out of the way to get <laughs> <Yes>. it. <laughs>
1: Nice. (laughs) Well, I read another one by Elizabeth Jordan, who was a popular writer in the early 20th century, Miss Nobody from Nowhere. It came out in 1928. It is about a woman who has amnesia. It just starts. She's in this hotel, doesn't know who she is, what's going on. And I wasn't planning on reading it, but again, I just got sucked into this. Her books are not in print anymore, which is a shame because I think they're very entertaining. I just wanted to read two things from this book. You get the sense that she is an upper-middle-class woman. That could have just been my assumption laying on it. And she ends up working in a cabaret. (laughs) And she's living across the hall from a dancer at a cabaret, which is how she gets into this job that she has for a while. And the woman next door, her name is... Miss Ivy Davenport, she comes over. She's one of the dancers at a place called Jake's. She asks Eve, the main character, for a smoke. And Eve says, no, I don't smoke. And she says, my aunt, she observed, staring at the other with her round china blue eyes. I thought there wasn't a girl left that didn't smoke these days. What's the matter? She ended easily, got cancer of the throat. (laughs) I was like, wow. (laughs) wow yeah right you get the sense that you can just see somebody from that time period saying that and then there's another dancer at this club and she says of the men who are guests of the club they tell you how lonesome they are stella contributed lonesome she sneered they don't open my faucets with that dope the men that come here is as lonesome as angel worms in a box of bait i like that one too I just thought like they're really snappy. I like the the image of
0: opening her faucets.
1: I know, right? With that dope. Yeah. You know, I could just hear that in a snappy, Mm -hmm. snappy movie. There are some standard time period racist things happening as well. But overall, I thought it was a really good story, I have to say. Now, I started looking around about this story, and I found out, That in 1975 there was a harlequin romance novel published with the same name. (laughs) Mm. Because when I went to add it on Goodreads, the book I had just read that that is the book that came up, and I was like, that is not the book I read. But then I read the description of this harlequin romance. It was written by Elizabeth Ashton, 1975, and this is the description: She had no idea who she was or where she came from, only that she had been in an accident somewhere in the remote northwest of India and that Clive Stratton had rescued her. He found a name for her, Angela, and took her under his wing. Back in England, the peaceful surroundings of Clive's Dorset home, they both hoped that gradually memory and happiness would return to Angela. But what chance of happiness had she when she found herself living with the glamorous ghost of Clive's first wife? Oh, my. So I was like, okay, that combines (laughs) Elizabeth Jordan's novel and Rebecca. Yeah. Right? I was just like, holy smokes, maybe kind of want to read that just to to see and then reread Rebecca. I love that it's not just the ghost of the ex-wife, but the glamorous ghost. (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) The main book, though, that I was talking about was Miss Nobody from Nowhere by Elizabeth Jordan, 1928. It has some really cool resolution. (laughs) It went in a direction or two that I didn't anticipate, which is kind of happy. That's cool. I read Miss Eliza's English
0: Kitchen, a novel of Victorian cookery and friendship by Annabelle Abs. It was kind of fun to be reading the black, the white, and the gray, and then reading this, which is historical fiction. It is based on Eliza Acton, who, unbeknownst to me, um, wrote and published in 1845 the book Modern Cookery. In all its branches, reduced to a system of easy practice for the use of private families. Wonderful. How's that for a title? That's a mouthful, yeah. <laughs> and it was an immediate bestseller. And she is regarded as the person who made recipes, which at the time were called receipts,
2: really? which I think is
0: so interesting more formal, where they actually listed the ingredients and had more defined instructions for cooking. So she's really regarded in that way. She was a poet. She had published a book of poetry. And when she went back to her publisher to work on her second book of poetry, they said, we are not interested in that, but we would like you to write a book about cookery. (laughs) So she did. It took her 10 years. And it sold more than 125,000 copies in 30 years, and then it was returned to print in 1966 and has been reprinted several times since. And then this woman, Mrs. Beaton, came along and wrote a cookbook that apparently plagiarized quite a few of these recipes, but she switched the ingredients. When Eliza did her cookbook, the ingredients were at the end of all the instructions, and Mrs. Beaton put them at the beginning Which is now how all recipes are when you get a cookbook.
1: Interesting.
0: Very interesting. I ended up listening to quite a bit of it, and it's narrated by Elle Potter and Bianca Amato. They did a great job. It's somewhat of an upstairs downstairs. So if you enjoy books and stories like that, Eliza ends up bringing on an assistant named Anne. She thinks she's just coming to be kind of like a maid to this woman in her house and then ends up being treated very well and becoming an assistant to helping to write this cookbook. But she does not come from very much. So she's thrilled to be there, but also afraid about losing her job. And Eliza came from a family of means that has kind of gone south. So there's a lot of pressure for her to marry and, and, have a good life. And at one point she is looking to marry a spice merchant and decides not to because he makes it clear that she will not be able to continue writing her cookbook if they get married. Mm. So her mother's not very happy because it was going to change all of their lives. So I really enjoyed it. Oh, there's no recipes in it, which is interesting, but each chapter is titled with a food Chapter four is seasoned gruel, for example. (laughs) And then chapter five is brown bread pudding. So they will talk about that food, you know, in the course of the chapter somehow, but there are no ingredients. But it did inspire me to want to just cook some foods from back in the day. Like one of the things they talked about was figs with cream and port. Just sounds so good. Mm -hmm. And it was a time in 1835 when new spices were at play and new fruits and things like that. So they refer to things like Jamaica ginger and curry spice. So she was also cooking with things that hadn't been cooked with so much before. I really enjoyed it. And Annabelle Abbs, the author, came to learn about eliza acton because she inherited her mother-in-law's group of cookbooks and her mother-in-law had worked for good housekeeping and been involved in the food world somehow she was browsing through and came across and she had a copy of this cookbook by eliza acton got very interested in who this woman was nice yeah
1: Very cool. That sounds fascinating. And another book about marriage and appropriate joining of two people and how awful it could be if you do marry the wrong person.
0: And how hard it is to walk away. It definitely was a lot about women pursuing dreams and being devoted to this dream. I mean, it took her 10 years to write this book. Again, it was called Miss Eliza's English Kitchen, a novel of Victorian cookery and friendship by Annabelle Abs. And thanks again to the listener that reached out and told me about the language of food and me going on that hot pursuit to realize it was the book that I actually did have in my hands. So thank you for encouraging me to read it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I also finished The Displacements by Bruce Holsinger. This is about a Category 6 hurricane that's coming down in Miami. The main character, Daphne, lives in a gated community. She has a charmed life, a surgeon as a husband, two children from that marriage, and her very grouchy stepson from her husband's first marriage, who's home from college. He has dropped out, and he's very grouchy. Suddenly, this hurricane is bearing down on them, and the four of them get in a car while the husband is off at the hospital trying to get patients squared away and moved on, and the grouchy teenager, he purposefully did not allow her pocketbook to go into the back of the car. So they get up north in northern Florida to go purchase gas to discover she has no cell phone, no wallet, they're in trouble. So they end up in an encampment, a mega shelter of sorts. And the story takes place post Katrina, post the pandemic, post recession. So in my mind, it was like, 2025. I don't really know the exact date. So they've learned some lessons. These mega shelters are set up, you know, they're a little bit more ready for these environmental crises. In other words, there's a cast of characters in this book. It is a real testament about climate change, about how you can go from having something to having nothing. And when you end up in these mega shelters, still somehow, pods are going to form with different socioeconomic structures of sorts. I mean, people didn't really have anything, but they held on to certain beliefs.
1: It's probably the best way to say it. Their status. Yes, exactly. Or their caste, I guess, is Isabel Wilkerson would say maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to say
0: it. And they are referred to as IDPs or internally displaced persons once they're in this mega shelter. There's a lot going on in this book. And there are little interludes throughout called The Great Displacement, A Digital Chronicle of the Luna Migration. Luna is the name of the hurricane. And those are from all different perspectives, meteorologists, people who were in these mega shelters. It's kind of like a a chronicle after the fact of what happened and what's going to happen with climate change in the future and
1: things like that. That's so cool. So it's kind of like documentation of this fictional hurricane. That's so cool. It was pretty cool. And there's also a
0: thread in the story about drugs, because drugs enter the mega shelter and have an impact. And there's also a library that pops up, which it had never occurred to me, first of all, how horrible it would be for people like us (laughs) to get somewhere and not have any books. Right. Can you imagine? No. So books get donated and they open this little library. And the crabby stepson ends up working there because he was an avid reader. He is an avid reader in the story. And so he's there looking for books and the librarian encourages him to become someone who works there. And then a pop-up reading like um, story hour happens because these little kids basically force him to start reading books to them. And it is so cute. It's very cute. But the library is also used for illicit things like drugs. So the library becomes quite a big part of this book, which was surprising in a good way to me. I really enjoyed the book. It's a page-turner And Bruce Holsinger has a lot to say in it. Again, it's called The Displacements by Bruce Holsinger.
1: It's a big book, too.
0: It was over 400 pages, and Mm -hmm. I read it all weekend. I mean, it's really one that once you start, you cannot put it down.
1: Nice to know. Yeah. Yeah. So, Chris, did you go on any Biblio adventures? Well, you know, I did. I met up with our friend Kate, who lives down in the Bronx. We met at the halfway point, which was Norwalk connecticut at a place where we could eat lobster rolls yeah <laughs> so we met up to discuss jane austen's mansfield, mansfield park because we both read it kind of at the same time for austin in august and then um you know lobster rolls are always a good thing so we had our informal book club together which is lovely to talk about mansfield park which she also really enjoyed and the lobster rolls were good Mm, They did not take off my top lobster roll place, which is Lobster Landing in Clinton. If anybody's interested, great lobster rolls there. So it was really nice. And then bonus, Kate brought me a copy of Jane Harper's next book called Exiles. This bad boy is not out until January 2023. So thank you so much, Kate, for that. Lovely. The only
0: Biblio adventure I went on was I've been doing some book calling, as has the gentleman caller when we reset up his bookshelves. Some of them came off permanently. So we've been hitting up little free libraries, which is so fun. We've done some by bike, and some by driving around. The the problem is seemingly, we seem to take as many as we leave, which is a problem. But I should say he does
1: more than (laughs) I do. I might have a little more self control. I've also been binging Outlander, the series, because, you know, I never read the books. I was planning on it, but, you know, they're all really big chunksters, and there's a bunch of them, and I know so many people have loved them, my mom and my sister included in that. But Laura being gone every night for rehearsals because her play Magpie is this weekend, I was looking around for something to watch that she wouldn't watch because there's a lot of blood and gore, wow, and a lot of sex. If you're looking for some sex and gore, <laughs> <laughs> wrapped up with some romance and some cool historical uh, visuals, because um, there's time travel, right? Yes. Yeah, So it starts with this woman. It's post-World War II. She's been a nurse in Europe, taking care of soldiers, you know, on the battlefield. And her husband was back in London working in intelligence. They're British. They go to visit a friend of the husband's in Scotland, and she gets transported back to 1740s or so Scotland. Something happens, and (laughs) there she is. It's really wild, because one of the characters in Scotland is a bad man who looks just like her husband. It's one of her husband's ancestors, actually. Mm -hmm. And she falls in love with this guy who's a Highlander. I didn't plan on getting as hooked as I did, (laughs) I mean, I also just recently found out that I'm 5% Scottish. So maybe that has something to do with that. that You know, it's in my DNA. (laughs)
0: Um, So I was gonna say is each season one of the books because each book is a 1000 pages, and they're 40 hours on audio. I mean, they are not
1: short. (laughs) No, they are not. And I have no idea. Okay, I do not know because I didn't read them. Mm -hmm. Like I said, it starts in the 1940s. And then it goes back to the 1740s or 50s. So, Claire is the woman character. You see her at different times in history in different points with her husband back in England and then in Boston because mm-hmm. they moved to Boston at one point. You know, you see the growth of her life, what happens with their relationship. Well,
0: I saw one of them, not the first one, but one of the books in in one of these little free libraries that we saw over the past week and It took up like half the little free library. (laughs) Like I am not getting involved in that series. Even though I've wanted to. Like I know I would like
1: it, I think. And I think I would too, yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, I was thinking that might be a candidate for bedtime reading on my Kindle. Mm, You know? Especially Mm. once I know the story. Mm -hmm. It won't maybe keep me up at night, but you know, give me that little bedtime reading. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Outlander streaming now, late to the party as usual. (laughs) Well, we have a fun upcoming
0: jaunt. Our Zoom discussion of The Seed Keeper is on September 18th at 7 p.m. Reminder, this is our third quarter read-along. The Seed Keeper, Diane Wilson, there is a discussion on Goodreads as
1: well. Yeah, jump in there if you want to. We'd love to chat a little bit more. I know now that I'm going to have more of a structured schedule, I'll probably be on Goodreads a little bit more again. Yeah. Yeah. I should add, I have still been listening to The Warmth of Other Suns, slowly but surely. Good. Yeah. Um, I'm really enjoying it. Some of the small things that she says are major, like that riots typically have been started by whites in the North and in American history in general, and that they are kind of the equivalent of what lynchings were in the south which is like something Mm. i would have never ever thought of but yeah Mm. do you have other biblio adventures i'm heading to a wedding in ohio this weekend and
0: i did look up a cool looking bookstore right where we're going to be staying called pop exclamation mark art books culture Mm. sounds good it's going to be a very brief trip but if timing allows i might try to pop
1: in there. <laughs> nice. I know it can be tricky when you have scores of family. Other duties is as assigned, as job descriptions say. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, I signed up for a really exciting biblio adventure, and that is the Provincetown Book Festival is happening September sixteenth through the eighteenth in Provincetown, Massachusetts. I specifically hope to make it to the Saturday at eleven thirty event. It's a conversation between Melissa Homestead and Scott Bain. Scott has written a book called A Union Like Ours The Love Story of F. O. Matthiason and Russell Cheney. Mathiason, he was a literary scholar known for several different books, but one very influential was the American Renaissance. He actually coined the term American Renaissance for looking at mid nineteenth century writing. This is a story about these two men. They met on an ocean liner in 1924, and they were together until one of them passed away in 1945. Chaney was an artist. I look forward to reading this. It's a cute cover. Um, It's the two of them in their swimming costumes (laughs) at a beach somewhere with one of those beach tents behind them. We had Melissa Homestead on as a guest. She was on episode 128 when she talked about the Only Wonderful Things, which is her joint biography of Edith Lewis and Willa Cather. So upcoming
0: reads. I think we both have The Seat Keeper by Diane Wilson. Yes. Are you going to
1: mainly read the book or do the audio?
0: I think I'm going to read it. Okay. I haven't looked at the audio, but I was thinking of looking at it mm-hmm. too, because I might do both to get it in my head a little bit more. Yeah. And then I also have Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures by Merlin Sheldrake. I picked this up when we were in Toadstool thanks to a heads up from our listener, Katie. Thank you. I was just writing about it a little bit today and I got completely lost in it already. So I think I'm going to try to read it on our drive.
1: Nice. Sorry, Gentleman Caller. I could read it a lot loud.
0: I might. He would actually be interested in that. So, you're going to be reading about seeds and
1: fungi. That's right. Nice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then I'm also really excited about On the Rooftop by Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. This just came out this week. It was announced as a Reese Witherspoon pick. Good for her. But she's the author of The Revisioners, which is in my top 20, top 10 in 2020. So, I was thrilled to see she has a new book out. Super excited. And then, out now books we've talked about in the past. Our buddy Debbie Machico Florence's book, Sweet and Sour, published finally this week. It was supposed
1: to come out in July and there was some publishing kerfuffle there. And that's the one that's a, a middle grade reader and a wonderful story set in Mystic, Connecticut.
0: Yeah, she posted a really cute picture on social media yesterday of her signing stacks of it at Bank Square Books looking out over the street of Mystic, which was really cool. And then the other book that's out now is Lucky Girl, How I Became a Horror Writer, A Krampus Story by M. Reichert. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: That was a good one. I enjoyed that. Yeah. And, you know, it's a scary book time reading. You know, in the fall, a lot of people start reading scary books, darker books gothic books so that would be with a good your, one
0: with your pumpkin spice latte or whatever all things pumpkin yeah i don't, I don't get the pumpkin drinks sorry everybody but i don't either i know i do like pumpkin bread i'll do that
1: would you yeah. yeah yeah i guess i like pumpkin bread i can hear our buddy john valeri just passed out yes what hearing us say that <laughs> spilled his pumpkin latte he as is, he passed out he is a huge pumpkin person yes Coming
0: up next, we have a conversation with our buddy Russell from Ink and Paper Blog. He has been reading through the Booker Prize long list. The short list was just announced. So we decided we wanted to chat with him about how he tackled this big project of reading all these books. Yes, and
1: maybe even some predictions. That's right. Happy Happy reading.
0: reading. Well, we're so excited to have Russell Gray back with us today from Ink and Paper Blog. If you're not watching him over on YouTube, get started. Your TBR list will explode in all the good ways. Russell has been on with us before on episode 51, 120, and 146. Those last two appearances were where the three of us at the beginning of the year talk about our top 10 reads from the prior year, which is so fun. But today we thought we'd have Russell on to talk about his recent exploits reading the Booker Prize long list, all thirteen books. Wow!
2: All thirteen <laughs> books in like five weeks.
0: Right.
1: Very short <laughs> period of time. Yes. yes. Intense. Yes. <laughs> well, Russell, before we jump into some, you know, specifics, can you tell us a little bit for the listeners what is the Booker Prize exactly?
2: So, I'm no expert, but I can say. So, the Booker Prize, I think, has been around since about 1969. So, originally, it was the prize that was only awarded to parts of the Commonwealth. So, it only included, you know, um, I think it was like South Africa, Ireland, the UK countries, and all of that. But a few years ago, they opened it up to America. Now The rule is it has to be a book published in the UK, published in English, so originally written in English. Um, They started the the Booker International Prize a few years ago. That's where they handle translated literature. Um, So the Booker Prize, it's gone through many names. It was the Booker Prize for fiction, and then it was the Man Booker, and now it's just the the Booker. Um, and it's comes out every year in about um, July, they announce a long list of 13 to 16 books, It sort of sometimes fluctuates. And um, then they go down to a short list of six, and then they announce a winner. So it's been very controversial since the US joined in the first two years An American one once we joined so you know, all of that conversation that had to happen but it's evened itself out so yeah this year they put out a long list and i couldn't say no
0: so is this your first year reading the complete list
2: i for the last five years have read the complete national book award long list for fiction every year um but this year The Booker came out and I was like, you know what? It was such a fantastic list of books. So normally I pick and choose. A lot of the problems with the Booker for us in the U.S. is many times, one, the books are not out here. So we have to order them internationally. And a lot of the times the Booker will choose books that haven't quite been published yet. So Mm -hmm. it becomes very difficult for someone over here in the U.S. to get those books. But this year, all of the books were out. All but three of them were available in the US and one came out right thereafter. It wasn't available in the US, but it was very easy to get. So I didn't have to work as hard to get all of the books. And you know, this this list, it had the 13 books. It had the youngest person ever to be nominated for the Booker Prize It had the oldest person ever to be nominated from Oakland, California to Sri Lanka. We were everywhere on this list and it was just too exciting to pass up. So I just dove in.
1: Did you make a a reading schedule for yourself? Like, how did you approach the reading of these books and what did it do to the other books that you had planned on reading?
2: Well, it did, I put most of my other reading on hold. I had a number of the books, so I just really started in alphabetical order. And I made a deal with myself that I would read at least two hours a day during the week and four hours on the weekend. I just knew that I had to sort of create a plan that would get me through all of them. And I am a proponent. Um, I will go, you know, I will stand on my mountain and bear my flag. I firmly believe if you listen to an audio while you read the book, you read more quickly, it keeps you focused. So I did a lot of that. I would have the audio in my ears while I was reading the book, keeps distractions away and keeps me focused on the page.
0: And did you do that with all 13?
2: No, the last four did not have audio books. So that mm-hmm. was when I sort of transitioned. I would say the 13th book, though fantastic, I was in a little bit of litfic fatigue. <laughs> 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 it was lots of heavy topics, lots of sadness, lots of flowery language. I was craving that book that just sort of went, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Um, but yeah, no. It was it was an experience. I'm really really happy I did it.
0: So we're not going to prattle off all 13 books because we just feel like that'd be kind of overwhelming. We will put a link in the show notes to those 13. But yesterday the short list was announced. So that's going down from 13 books to 6. The winner will be announced on October seventeenth. So, Russell, you did a really cool thing of like picking what you thought should be your short list, yeah. and then showing what did move on to the next level. I guess is the way to say it. <laughs> so, so tell us your your thoughts about the short list. Are you happy, sad, surprised?
2: Um, I um I will say that I'm surprised. I w- so we won't talk about the entire long list, but I will just throw out there that. Trust by Hernan Diaz was on the long list. Um, and that may be the best book I've read in 2022. It is fantastic. I was shocked that it was not on the shortlist. Mm. So there were a couple things they said when they announced the, um, the, the shortlist. There's a lot of satire and humor in the shortlist. And it seemed that they were going for that. As they were talking about the books that they picked, it seemed like they were looking for books that sort of had that satire element to them, a sense of humor. And so that really did cancel out a large portion of the list. So if you take into mind what they were saying, the list makes a lot of sense, the short list. There are two books. I liked all of the books, but there were three that I was like sort of okay with. And two of those made the short list. And so I was floored <laughs> um, by that. So, you know, I mean, it is what it is. We all have different tastes. That's what's fantastic about reading. But I think some very, very good books left, got left off the short list.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, I mean, it is interesting. We've talked before on the podcast about how awards are judged by groups of people. And so often on these types of awards, the judges change from year to year. So, you do get these different takes on what the judges are looking for, whether they're looking as a unit, like you're saying, with maybe the satire. Um, but I remember when I was younger, I used to think an award was like the award, it's the pinnacle. And now, of course, we understand it's a judgment by a group of people. So, um, it's interesting. Thank you for pointing that out about what you saw as maybe what they were going for.
2: I think what was really interesting with the long list is it was so vast and broad. And that's what made it so exciting. You know, Mm. you were reading from different perspectives and different parts of the world and different, a lot of playing with structure and form on this long list. A lot of that didn't make it to the short list, which was really surprising um, considering how many books were doing something different and new. the narrative style of these books is a little bit more straightforward than the long list would have led you to believe. So
0: hmm. it's interesting. So, so am I to interpret from what you've said that if you were to pick a winner from your chosen shortlist, it would have been Trust?
2: Yes, I think Trust is up there. It was probably that or the Trees by Percival Everett, which did make the shortlist. To me, those are probably the two most perfect books on the list the least that i would change about them but um yeah trust blew my mind like it was Mm -hmm. one of those books that when you turn the last page you were like what did he just do Mm and (laughs) then you were like let me start all over again and Mm -hmm. you know it's good and the trees we i mean we can go through the list but percival everett is a writer that is beloved by other writers but i don't think a ton of people read him which is really sad because he is immensely talented. He was shortlisted for the Pulitzer two years ago, and now he's shortlisted for the Booker. So clearly, you know, he has something to say.
0: Hmm. Hmm. So I have one more question about reading the long list. How you feel about books has so much to do with time and place and how you're feeling. And sometimes it's not the right time to be reading a book. Do you feel like there were times when you just wanted to put one of the books down, but you were kind of on a schedule and... (laughs) you stuck with it
2: absolutely and you know um there were there were a couple of books on the list where i was sort of losing my focus and i knew that if i did that i wasn't going to meet a goal and i knew that i wanted to do it but i allowed myself to walk away a little sometimes and lucky for me the last book that i needed to read took a while to get here so i had some space between book 12 and book 13 and i read something let's just say completely different <laughs> very very out there in the middle of that so it was able to sort of refresh me a little bit and get me ready for that last book yeah.
1: nice nice now do you take notes when you read or do any type of reaction after you finish a book just to, how do you keep things in your head
2: i don't i am one of those people that i've never really been able to write in a book it like is It just feels wrong to me as a person. I never like sort of jot in the book and I envy people that can do that. (laughs) I think that it's amazing. I was a literature major in college. So sometimes I've just, when I want to put myself back in that space, I tend to be able to remember things and get ready when it comes to sort of being able to analyze texts. As I was going from one to the other, I was always comparing. So I was always thinking about the books that I had just read. So they were never leaving my mind. So it was easier to keep all of that in my head.
0: That's amazing to me because when you do your videos on your booktube channel, like you talk about so many books and you remember what they're about. I could never do that without writing it down. (laughs) It would not work in my brain.
2: Yeah, you know, I tried in the beginning writing things out, and it just wasn't authentic for me, it came off very stilted. Um, So I find if I allow myself just to sort of be a reader, and give in to that and know that I'm going to make mistakes, I have, I'm unapologetically open to the fact that I make errors. (laughs) So um, and I don't hold my in myself to any sort of high standard that um, I just enjoy the process a little bit better.
0: So do you have any feelings about the fact that they opened it up to the United States? Because I know that's very controversial.
2: I do. You know what? I, I would say that my feeling is I think it is more representative of literature now than it was in the past, um, especially if you want to be a an award that sort of is the pinnacle of literature in English. To leave out the United States doesn't make sense to me, right? However, I would argue that um we have some awards here that need to do the same thing, <laughs> you know, be more inclusive to to foreign voices. Um, you know, our awards, the National Book Award and the Pulitzer seem to be very streamed on the we are America, the books are American sort of experience sort of thing. So, I think we could open up a little bit there. I just think it gives people more to read, like and it, more options of great books, so.
0: Yeah. I mean, the International Booker Prize is not a long list format. They just choose one book.
2: No, no, it is. Oh, it is. Yeah, long list, short list, the same exact process. It starts with thirteen books and goes down to six.
0: Oh, I don't know. um,
2: Yeah, so that is a fantastic prize to follow as well, but. In America translated literature can be very difficult to get your hands on and so trying to follow that prize is much more difficult. You have to be willing to order from out of the country and pay a bit more. Okay. Okay.
0: In in our country the National Book Award now does an award for translated fiction,
2: right? Yeah, I believe it's okay. two years running now. Okay. Yes, you just added it and yeah. um yeah, which is exciting. It really is very exciting. So. Mm-hmm
1: yeah nice well i guess it is in the title that it's the national book award Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) um you know i mean all of these awards the booker um the woman's prize i know the woman's prize has gone through several different sponsors so several different names over the decades um do you follow other prizes i'm sorry to take us away for a moment (laughs) from the booker but do you tend to follow other lists and prizes i
2: do absolutely i follow all well so i follow the big ones um i follow the national book i follow the women's prize i found out follow the booker i'm always a big fan of trying to guess who will get the nobel which i'm never right ever (laughs) um can you
0: be they're so (laughs) esoteric you know
2: (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy. So but um and then I'll look at other prize lists, but I I'm not as dedicated to them. There are so many amazing prizes out there. If I were to just do that, I would never get any other sort of reading done. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I just my goal in life is to use books to learn new experiences, to diversify how I understand the world. So Prizes can really do that, you know. They can sort of introduce you to authors you may never have heard of, or take you to places you've never been.
1: Yeah. yeah, nicely said.
0: So, are we allowed to ask you what you think's gonna win of this? I know that your shortlist didn't get moved forward, but of <laughs> the
2: shortlist that is out there, well, so let me just tell. I mean, I don't think I've said the shortlist. Yeah. Just in case the listeners don't know, there are six books on the shortlist. The first is Glory by No Violet Bula. And she is a Zimbabwean author and it is a an animal farm retelling of the 2017 coup of Robert Mugabe out of Zimbabwe. It's a fictional country in Africa where a coup occurs and sort of the taking over. It is very dense and the satire is like oozing off the page. Mm. (laughs) Um, um, That is not
0: one I would thought would have been satire. That's so interesting. Yeah.
2: Well, so it's one of those things just, you know, it's one of those books that's so steeped in realism that the fact she makes it animal, everyone an animal in it so that you start to go, oh, this is unbelievable until you realize how actual it is, right? Mm. (laughs) and Mm. You've seen it in the world. The second book is The Trees by Percival Everett, which is also another satire, but it is about um, murders that start to occur in Money, Mississippi, and they have a connection to the Emmett Till murder that occurred. People are being murdered and they're being found with a body of a Black man who looks like Emmett Till, and the investigation into that. Treacle Walker by Alan Garner. He is the oldest person to ever be nominated and he his birthday is the day they announce the winner. Uh, He'll be 88 I believe. The prior owner of that title was Margaret Atwood if you yeah. wanted to know. Alan Garner is interesting. So this is a book that did not work for me. He is a well-known English author of young adult fiction. He is like sort of beloved. Some of his books are considered British young adult classics, mm. this book relies heavily on his own canon and also on British mythology in a way that makes it very inaccessible to those who are not British and mm. know the work. Very surprised. It's also very scattered. It was very hard to follow, but interesting. Congratulations to him. The next book is The Seven Moons of Mali Almedia by Shehan Karantilaka. My Sri Lankan is terrible, Um, but it is the story of a photographer who at the very beginning of the book is killed and murdered, and he's given seven moons before he has to make a decision on if he's going to move on in the afterlife. And his desire is to get this box of photographs that he took that basically would shake up the Sri Lankan government. The book takes place during the Sri Lankan civil war. This was the book where I had to do the most Googling because I knew the least about Sri Lankan history. It is dark and beautiful and heart wrenching, and so many things. It's just a book that I think, if you get a chance to read it, will change your mind about a lot of things. And the next book is Small Things Like These by Claire King, the shortest book ever nominated. Ellendor shortlisted for the booker. It's 116 whopping pages. It's, it takes place in 1980s Ireland. It's about a man who delivers stuff for coal or firewood for heating. And he winds up at a nunnery where he finds some young girls that are not being treated well and decides to take some action. I found out that it is actually based upon something that happened in Irish history, that the Magdalena trials, I can't remember, I apologize. To me, this book was too short. It didn't have enough in it to get me to understand anything. Mm-hmm. And then our, I guess I call her like our forgotten literary hero, Elizabeth Strout. I just don't think enough people talk about her, but she's brilliant. And her mm-hmm. new book, William, is on the short list. I just feel like she's like a hug for the reader's heart. Like her, she's just so good at simple, beautiful, moving writing.
0: I loved yeah. that book. That's the only one of them I've read and I just loved it. Yeah.
2: You know, the fourth book in that series is coming out. I
0: just read it.
2: <laughs> so, it's
0: very good. Yeah. yeah.
2: I need to go back and do a deep dive. So I think it's a two-person race. I think that it's between Glory by Noviolet Bulawayo or The Seven Moons of Mali Alamedia. I won't try to say Shehan's last name again. My personal pick from this list would probably be The Trees. I think The Trees mm-hmm. is the book that will stand the test of time. Mm-hmm. But I will say that and the Elizabeth Straub book, four fantastic novels. So if any of those won, I would be very, very happy.
1: All right. Well, good. thank you for wow. that. I look forward to seeing which one wins.
0: Yeah, October 17th, everybody. What and mean? whether
1: or not uh, Mr. Garner wins, he's going to have a hell of a birthday party. If he yeah. attends <laughs> the
2: ceremony. <laughs> You- I know <laughs> exciting for him you know I think for me the the nomination is sort of uh an applaud to a career well mm. loved in the UK
0: yeah
2: um, I have many many thoughts on that but that's for another podcast yeah.
0: and are you going do you have any plans like t- you know to watch it or I'm not even sure what time it's announced it might it's be the usually of
2: announced day. in the middle of our work yeah.
0: so. oh, workday. okay
2: yeah so yeah. yeah no but I will definitely be paying attention uh wherever I may be
0: that's awesome, very good. Thank you so much for stopping by to tell us about your experience. And do you plan, you know, like in a few weeks to start reading the National Book Award list?
2: I will be there. I will be reading the <laughs> National Book Award long list. Let's hope that I've read more of these. That would be yes. real helpful. Yeah.
0: Yeah. One and would think there'll be something you've read. So,
2: yes. yeah let's hope. Or if I at least own them all, that would be right. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) That's a good stuff. Right. Well, thank you so much, Russell.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to the book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode until then come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page, where your purchase will help support not only the Book Cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from Libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keough, Sound Design.